Hello everyone, my name is Kanai Kapadia, and on this episode of Hindsight, I'll be interviewing Dave Mooney, whose leadership experience spans a range of financial services businesses, and who most recently served as president and CEO of Alliant Credit Union for 17 years until retiring earlier this year. Alliant is based in Chicago, and as a credit union, it serves members nationally. With $13 billion in assets, it ranks as the eighth largest credit union in the U.S., and in recent years has won quite a few awards, including being named Bankrate's 2020 Best Bank and Best Credit Union in America. Today, Dave serves on the board of directors of Operation Hope, NADAP, a workforce development agency, and on the advisory board of Datanomers, an AI machine learning startup. Dave, thanks for joining me on the show. It's my pleasure. When you joined Alliant, it was a different time and at a transition point for the company. Can you tell us a little bit about what the business looked like and what the marketplace looked like at that time? Yeah, sure. So I came to Alliant in uh, 2003, spring of 2003. Alliant for 68 years had been a single sponsor credit union. In fact, at the time it was known as the United Airlines Employees Credit Union and served exclusively United Airlines employees and their family members. So it had been for its long history, uh, the company store for the airline. At that time in 2003, if you remember, was um, post 9-11, United was in bankruptcy and the board made uh, the, the grudging decision about the time that I joined to uh, diversify sponsorship and membership, that it was not prudent to be reliant on a troubled company and a troubled industry. Alliant had uh, been known for its very high deposit rates. And within the credit union industry, in fact, it was often referred to as a savings club. Uh, Operated Mm -hmm. more, I would say, like a money market fund. It had a portfolio, asset portfolio, largely made up of very safe, uh, high-grade fixed income securities, very low-cost operation, uh, pretty stripped out, fairly primitive organization and systems. And and that actually, to be fair, was befitting uh, a, a company that, again, had been very focused on serving a very specific audience and was closely affiliated with United. Um, at the time I came on board, all of our employees were actually employees of the airline. We depended on United for legal, human resources, uh, uh, IT support. So one of the first things we needed to do is to establish independence and really become a an independent uh, financial institution competing in that bigger, uh, badder world of financial services. And that started with operational and IT independence, as well as employment independence. So we made the employees our own. Um, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily popular at the time because the employment proposition for many of our employees was free travel. And uh, we said, we're no longer uh, an arm of an airline. We are going to operate as an independent institution. We had to establish our own information technology and systems. Part of that included a conversion of a core. We were operating on a core system that was really designed for small credit unions Mm -hmm. and really not up to our needs. Uh, We had to establish 
functions like human capital, compliance, uh, legal, and, and significant upgrades to uh, our financial practices and systems. When I came on board, credit union was using cash accounting, had no oh. financial analysis function to speak of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we put in place, uh, hired a new CFO, put in place new you know, uh, accrual accounting systems, uh, created a financial planning and analysis function, um, started to do more um, I would say robust risk management, uh, and and really started to upgrade the practices and the systems of the credit union. Yeah, is it fair to say that there's essentially a carve out that you had to execute in some ways? And 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 again, you know, the credit union legally and financially was always independent of the airline, but we were mm-hmm. viewed by uh, our members, our employees, and by United as really operating as an arm of the airline. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we really had to become fully independent. And that, again, included also diversifying our sponsorship and membership, moving beyond United as the sole sponsor and recruiting additional uh, sponsors. Uh, today, Alliance serves uh, a number of, of large companies, including Kaiser Permanente, Google, Tesla, Aetna, uh, and others. Um, and so part of that meant also a name change, could not operate under such an exclusive name. We needed something that was broader, more inclusive. So we adopted a new uh, brand identity uh, and and branding in the marketplace. So how big was the credit union at the time? So So literally, were you, you know, was this a mandate coming out of bankruptcy to carve this out and you took this piece of it and ran with it. No, so no man, no mandate necessarily. In fact, some of the airline credit unions continue to be closely affiliated with their original sponsors. This was more a decision made by the board and management at the time that there was a, a certain existential threat to having our membership be entirely tied to a single single employer at that time. Uh, United was cutting pay, cutting benefits, furloughing large numbers of people. So there was mm-hmm. uh, definitely uh, an increased risk, both from that concentration, but also the the conditions that that, that the sponsor was operating under. Uh, mm-hmm. So we made the decision uh, to diversify. Uh, not uncommon in credit unions. Most credit unions had some sort of occupational roots, mm-hmm. um, either an affiliation with an employer uh, or in some cases a profession, um, and many credit unions had faced kind of similar challenges. Most have adopted a, uh, a community charter where they serve a given geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we looked at our options and considered community and felt that that was sort of a classic red ocean where, you know, you had at that time, 14,000 banks and credit unions competing largely on the same basis, which was branch location, decided that we actually liked that sort of wholesale employee benefits model, that it was more of a blue ocean, and that, in fact, the credit union had advantages. As I said earlier, we'd always been known for very high deposit rates, as well as low loan rates and, and low fees. And that was a pretty compelling proposition for employee benefits managers at large companies. 
Mm-hmm. And so that was something we could leverage. It was also our history was was workplace banking. Um, and it also, to a certain extent, neutralized the the significant, I would say, disadvantage that the credit union had, which was a very thin branch network. At the time, we mm-hmm. had 20 some odd branches spread out throughout the country, most of which, if not all of which at the time, were located in United facilities. No cash operations. Okay. Uh, very unusual for a retail bank or credit union. Yeah. Um, uh, but large national employers didn't really care that much about that. That was not a, a significant requirement on their part. In fact, what they were looking for primarily was financial value. And that's what, uh, what Alliant could deliver. Mm-hmm. Did it work well in the beginning? Or was it challenging to sign on new sponsors, new employers? Uh, actually, what we found, and we created a group to do that, uh, a, a B2B sales or business development group to lead that effort. And we actually found that for, for the employee benefits professionals, that it was a pretty easy sale because we could show them very clearly, very visibly, that it was a superior offering. The challenge that we found um, and, and I would say the credit union continues to face uh, 17 years later is developing awareness, appreciation, leading to consideration and purchase on the part of the end consumer. Most of the employees of, of these companies or in the case of a membership association like the Chicago Bar Association, which is also one of the sponsor organizations. Most of them already have banking relationships, so you really have to uh, get their attention and pry them away, if you will. Now, again, the rate proposition can be pretty compelling, but that's where we found the bigger challenges was within the uh, organization is getting awareness and appreciation. And part of that really depends very heavily on getting the active cooperation and promotion of the employer. Without that, it's very difficult. And, and I would say in the early stages, we were a little promiscuous. We, <laughs> we signed up a lot of companies um, of, of varying sizes and, and weren't really necessarily clear on what the mutual expectations were. So one of the things we learned over time is that we needed to have, have strong commitment on the part of the sponsor to mm-hmm. promote alliance services and and you know our our argument was it's in neither of our interests if that's not the case uh your employees aren't getting the value because they're not aware uh and alliant isn't getting value so um over the years we've terminated relationships with companies where there just wasn't sufficient interest or sufficient commitment to promoting alliant as a high value employee benefit mm-hmm. Now, would you compete more with, or did you compete more with traditional retail banks, or was it more so the 401k providers and the benefits, the financial benefits focused providers? Right. We certainly competed for attention with the other benefits providers, both financial 401k, for example, uh, as well as you know, medical. Uh, the banking benefit just wasn't, frankly, as prominent uh, mm-hmm. as as the others. From a banking competition standpoint, we tended to find ourselves, at least for that 
workplace banking, competing with the, the larger regional and national players who had corporate relationships and leveraged those to get their offerings in. Uh, but again, what we found was that our, our offerings were superior. So while the corporate treasurer who had the relationship with the bank might, uh, you know, be, be interested in featuring, you know, one of the large bank offerings, the employee benefits pr- professionals were more interested in providing recognized value. And without question, we could always beat them. I, you know, deposit rates, depending on where we were in the rate cycle, deposit rates anywhere from five to 20 times as high. Wow. Um, and, and so it was a pretty clear choice for the benefits manager. That, that's, a, that's a remarkable difference, right, in, in the value prop. And what, what allowed Alliant to deliver that? Yeah, so no, no particular uh, alchemy there. It, it, we had a very low-cost model. So, okay. um, uh, again, very thin branch network, no cash, high dependence on remote access. Initially, that was phone and mail. And uh, later on, uh, online and mobile, uh, as well as ATMs for any cash needs. So we had a very, very low cost model. When I got to the credit union, as I said, we sort of had a stripped out operation when I got there at at the expense of functionality and service quality. At that time, our, uh, our expense to assets ratio, which is a good way to look at a credit union, expense to assets was about 60 basis points, 0.6%. The typical bank or credit union was around 3%. Now, that has since gone up as as Alliance invested in people and technology and today is around uh, 1.4%, give or take. But the bank and credit union average is still around 3%. And the more efficient of those tend to be 2.7, 2.8. So still, you know, two times or, or better efficiency. And that translates into uh, higher rates on deposits, lower rates on loans, and uh, few and low fees. So as you think about, is that sustainable? As you, as you think about, I realize this is a bit of a crystal ball question, but when you think to the future of Alliant, it's maintained a level of efficiency that's worked. Is that sustainable as the credit union continues to grow? You know, I think I think it is, but I don't think it's sufficient. Uh, so, so I think that cost advantage is necessary. And and you know, one might say, well, what about the other digital direct, you know, national digital direct providers like Ally, Arcus, and so on? who will have uh, a scale advantage, already do have a scale advantage. And scale is very important, particularly in a digital model where much of the cost is fixed. Yep. One advantage Alliant has, at least currently and, and, and potentially for the time being, while the digital direct, uh, the larger digital direct players have lower operating costs, they have much, much higher marketing costs. Because they acquire business generally through mass marketing, mm-hmm. uh, Alliant gets about. Alliant has that. I think two advantages in acquisition. One is that sort of wholesale employee benefits model, very very efficient. You know, requires very very little promotion 
the sponsor is promoting. But Alliant gets over 60% of its business through word of mouth, through referrals from existing members and favorable mentions, like you said at the outset, uh, the financial publications, websites, blogs like Bankrate, NerdWallet, MyBankTracker, mm-hmm. GoBankingRates, and so on. And that recognition generates a tremendous amount of business for Alliant. So now, whether that is scalable is a big question, right? Mm-hmm. If you're twice as large, do you get twice as much word of mouth? Uh, I'm not sure. So I think that's a challenge. And I think one of the one of the challenges for Alliant and others of its ilk is to uh, how to cultivate you know, digital marketing capability to be able to continue that. And the yeah. likelihood is that Alliant will have to spend more in the future I think, yeah. to, to continue to generate growth. Mm-hmm. The other thing I said, as I said, was I think I think that low cost is necessary, not sufficient. So for for the target market for digital direct banking and 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 specifically for Alliant, uh, without without uh, revealing too much in the way of trade secrets, sure. the the target market tends to be a highly informed and discerning number one very sensitive to value they expect to get good financial value as well as be recognized for their strong credit they tend to have above average wallets and they demand performance operational performance functionality mm-hmm. reliability ease of use you know having good rates good pricing is table stakes to compete in that marketplace. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the cost structure to support that. Or as in the case of some of uh, the direct players, you have to have high yielding assets. Although the, the risk there is you have, you'll have significant variability mm-hmm. in your returns and, and that could at times hamper your ability to support your pricing. But, but that said, the basis for competition is likely going to be more around experience, more around functionality, the reliability, uh, the ease of use, and, you know, perhaps also uh, personalization, uh, which will probably take on more importance over time, the ability to truly personalize that experience. So I think, you know, what, what we recognized is that while we had the cost and price piece, we were going to need to get much, much better at delivering uh, an exceptional experience and, yeah. and, and specifically an exceptional digital experience right? Uh, supported by attended service via phone. Yeah. So 17 years ago, digital was not nearly the, yeah. the, the prominent piece of the solution right. that it is today, right. and, but you didn't have the branches. So was was customer service, customer experience? How how did that? What did that look like then? Was it challenging? Yeah. How did it change over time? Yeah, it, it was very challenging. And I I would say our legacy membership had been willing to trade high returns on their saving for uh, mediocre or worse service experience. Much of which was delivered by phone. Was you know. When I arrived, you, it was not unusual for somebody on peak days and hours for a, a member to wait a half an hour to speak to a phone rep. We, again, the, 
systems, the management systems were primitive. We didn't offer 24-7 service, uh, even though that was a primary way people got service then. We, we didn't have scheduling uh, systems in place, didn't employ part-timers for peak hours. You know, the things that modern call centers did and, and today do. And so that was one of the things we had to install is put in place standards and then invest in the operation and the management processes, practices, and systems to be able to deliver a higher quality of service to the phone, which was, again, our primary from a volume standpoint, our prim- primary means of serving members. Our branches were actually at that time pretty effective, but mm-hmm. again, limited access, limited uh, capability at that time, but but highly professional. So yeah, it was a challenge. Uh, also, we had a lot of system constraints, IT constraints, because we were using a, uh, a core that just had very limited capability. So, you know, we didn't really offer anything that looked like what you would know as a joint account today, for mm-hmm. example. Um, mm-hmm. And again, added to that was just our practices and our processes were primitive. So we had no, we had no change control, very limited documentation. We were a $4 billion financial institution, which is not insignificant size back in, uh, well, even today, but, but back in, in 2003. Uh, we had seven people in our IT group. I don't know offhand today what Alliant has, but but it's more than tenfold that. So at the time, what had worked prior to external circumstances affecting United's United's performance, branches worked right. Yeah. In in office. So was that part of the thought process? Was that considered for some of these new sponsors? We we considered it, and there are a number of institutions who have workplace banking uh, operations who have put um, some sort of limited service facility into those offices. Mm-hmm. Um, we just sort of assessed and said that's the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, even back in you know two thousand three, we saw that the shift to remote and self service access was persistent, if gradual, mm-hmm. and that there was really no way, realistically, that Alliant was going to compete on the basis of locational convenience, mm-hmm. that that train had already left the station, particularly if we were going to be a more national provider. So at that point, uh, other than a few selective openings and moving some of the uh, branches that were located in United facilities out into public access space, so mm-hmm. that at least both United and non-United clients could could access them. We we really didn't do more than a couple of new locations in markets where we thought we had opportunity. Uh, and, and frankly, looking back, if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't have opened those. And and around 2015, we made the decision to really commit to being a, a digital first. Player, not just in terms of channel, but also in terms of you know operating with a digital mindset and and in a digital environment. So kind of throughout the organization. But at that time, we also uh, foresaw within a period of of three four years becoming branchless and evolving into a completely direct remote self service 
uh, model with, you know, utilizing online and mobile channels and then top-notch contact center for attendance service, which we felt was critical. And, and I think I, I continue to believe that at the end of the day, you still need a human safety net, um, that there are just certain interactions or certain types of problems that require having that, uh, that attended service and a highly professional attended service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think even a lot of the kind of pure play digital banks or neobanks are learning that, that they need to establish call centers, even though they started out as, you know, mobile exclusive, uh, that, you know, consumers at times still need to talk to somebody for reassurance or to get assistance on complex problems. So the contact center piece makes sense to me. My question for you is this. Technologically, would it be fair to say that the behind the scenes for all banking institutions is pretty fragmented? There are lots of different offerings that make up or lots of different technologies that make up the what hopefully is a unified experience <laughs> for, for the customer. Yeah, that's that's a, re- a really great observation, and in fact, that's right. I mean, I- I've always thought that banking, on one level, was a pretty simple business in mm-hmm. terms of functionally, you know, what an intermediary does, primary the primary offerings. But operationally, it's actually pretty complex. Mm-hmm. A lot of different products and services, as you suggest, a lot of different systems, and so you might have a core system, which is essentially the accounting system, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, the customer account system and then the financial accounting system, the record keeping. But there are all sorts of other systems involved, payment systems, a variety of them, right? Whether, whether it's wire transfer, credit card, so on. Lending systems. And that could be, again, a multiple consumer lending. Uh, and consumer lending might even be fragmented. Right. Mortgage lending, uh, small business, so on. So lots and lots of systems and, and lots of infrastructure supporting that. And I think one of the big challenges and one one that we had identified as actually a key success factor for the future as we looked at, as we did our planning and, and kind of looked at multiple pictures of the future and multiple market paths, is uh, technical ecosystem integration mm-hmm. as being a capability or competency that would be valuable if not essential uh, in in that ever expanding technical ecosystem, and in addition, by the way, in addition to all the different systems and subsystems within the financial institution, they're also interfacing with uh, an expanding universe of other systems outside of the institution, uh, credit bureaus, fintech partners, you name it. So so whether it's other operating systems or data sources. Um, again, to me, it looks like this sort of ever-expanding universe. And if you don't get good at ecosystem integration, then it will eventually overwhelm. And it will be incredibly hard to deliver a timely, reliable service. It Development will, will bog down, will become, again, incredibly hard and a lengthy process. And of course, what, what consumers are more and more used to is, you know, seeing new development take place, you know, uh, continuously, on a, uh, a continuous basis, yeah. right? 
sometimes to our frustration, right? So sure. we, we open up our app and go, what? This doesn't look like what I saw yesterday. But I think the the point being that to be agile and adaptable and, and operate in in that ecosystem, you're going to have to get good at integration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there there are a bunch of a bunch of I think requirements or requisites to that. Uh, APIs will be a big piece of that. Uh, the cloud becomes ever more important in that equation. But again, um, yeah, the you know managing both the internal and external interfaces is a is a big challenge. And then, as has been well reported in the in the you know kind of the banking press, a lot of the the cores that are in use today are older technology uh, sort of patched together and and that much harder to deal with. Although the big debate is, do you replace the core, mm-hmm. which somebody described as, you know, replacing the New York subway system uh, or, <laughs> or, uh, or replacing your spine, or do you take another approach, uh, you know, a wrapper around that, right? Um, which I think is becoming the more favored way to uh, uh, less expensive and, and uh, less risky. Although some have undertaken, you know, large scale core conversions to new technology, but uh, hmm. others will take a, that wrapper approach and, and uh, just try to isolate the core. Yeah. So if you're going to take a digital first approach, as you did in 2015, you have to have some level of confidence that it's feasible. And and literally, we're talking about feasibility in some cases, right? right? With the limitations of cores and the ever-expanding world of, of tech, both in financial services and in the consumer world. Right. Was that a commitment to success or was there some due diligence there that made sense? Yeah, there there was a lot of due diligence. We engaged in periodic scenario planning as our as our primary means of both strategic planning as well as risk management. And sort of the basis of that thinking is that that you know we can't predict the future. That there are multiple possible futures. I think of it as a cone of possibility. And so, rather than place bets on a single view of how the marketplace will evolve to consider multiple possible paths, look at the implications of those, and then identify the competencies and capabilities that would be valuable or necessary to compete effectively and to deliver on the mission in, in those various futures. And particularly uh, important is identifying those that intersect, those that are common the multiple futures. And those become the key success factors that for long-term competency building, uh, we focus on. And and scenario planning, one of the things it requires to do it effectively is it requires uh, a lot of kind of critical assessment, requires that you challenge firmly held beliefs about the business, Mm -hmm. uh, which is difficult, that one try to identify biases and avoid frame blindness and i think uh, i think that's been a, a an issue within the banking industry is certain uh, a certain amount of frame blindness particularly around the branch and mm-hmm. and 
not the branch as the sole means of delivery, but sort of defining thing around the branch and a, a model that uh, is based on the branch. So yeah, scenario planning we found to be very useful in sort of, again, looking forward and thinking about what that future marketplace might look like um, in, again, a very critical, sober way. Yeah. And, and to your specific question, so what we determined was, A, again, no way was Alliant really going to be successful competing on the basis of physical location and, and locational convenience. And, and even if we could, it was futile. Because again, you know, so is everybody else. So uh, in some ways, the decision to commit to being digital first and a national digital direct player was sort of like, well, what's left? <laughs> uh, what, what else? And, and some of it was, again, a feeling that we could, if we were very focused, very clear, very disciplined, that we could do that. We knew we had competition and probably more emerging over time. So we mm -hmm. knew it was not an easy market, but we preferred that competition and, and to, to go that route and felt we could be more successful in, in both competitively and delivering on the mission than if we had, if we had simply tried to straddle, which is, which is kind of where we were um, and where most retail institutions are today. Mm -hmm. straddling that kind of local branch-based traditional model and also offering, you know, um, uh, digital access online and, and mobile access. And, and the problem, I think, for those who operate with a traditional model is at the end of the day, their value proposition is largely around location. So they may offer other channels and satisfy consumer desire to, you know, be able to conduct a lot of their business uh, remotely and through self-service. Uh, but at the end of the day, what's the value proposition? And I think if the value proposition is locational convenience, I see that eroding uh, in importance. And, and then what? Right. So we decided, look, we're going to go with that persistent trend. We're going to we're going to commit. We're going to be very focused. We're going to focus on a market segment that not only is comfortable dealing remotely but prefers it, and it's actually a pretty big market. We're going Absolutely. to focus on that highly demanding, that informed, discerning, demanding consumer. Not easy to serve, but if you can do it, you have something right. Mm -hmm. um, and and you're at that point you're also serving the marketplace that has um, bigger wallets and bigger contributions, mm -hmm. and because they're discerning, they look for strong providers. And so if you can be that strong provider, and again, not easy, and and you know that's a coveted market segment. Mm -hmm. But today, only a handful of providers can serve, uh, mm -hmm. and and if you don't have First and foremost, if you don't have the ability to deliver good pricing, superior mm -hmm. pricing, you're not even on their list. You right. might be for a local checking account, but you're not going to capture the bulk of their wallet. 
So if you're one of these institutions that's branch heavy, going digital first would double your cost, right? Yeah, you, right. And you would so incur that's, the cost of the fixed right. IT infrastructure plus your branches. Right. So so one of the advantages Alliant has, and one of, again, the, the things that compelled us to really get uh, focused was the ability to focus investment on that digital development mm-hmm. without the overhead. Now, since the branch system was very small to begin with and had limited transaction set, we weren't spending a lot on branches anyway. But mm-hmm. um, in addition to just the financial costs, I can tell you from having been a branch banker for 15, 20 years that mm-hmm. it also demands a great deal of management attention. Absolutely. Um, and, sure. and so it's, it's not just a sort of a financial drag, if you will. It's also, it's also a drag on attention and, and other resources. So yeah. uh, one of the things that Alliant can do is focus on 100% of management attention and spending an investment on that digital development. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's an advantage too, because you're right. Uh, if, you're, if you're straddling both worlds again, branches represent, for the typical retail bank, about 60% of their cost base uh, between people, real estate systems. And so, you know, that's a lot to overcome. Yeah. Uh, if you also want to have, you know, top-notch uh, online and, and, and mobile access capabilities, plus, and I think this is what also maybe doesn't get enough attention, being digital first isn't just about the interface, the user interface. In some ways, that's the last mile. You know, if, if you don't have really good um, operating systems and digital capability, uh, data, um, because it, it's coming down to that data. It, it's all about data in, data out, and what mm-hmm. you do with that. But if you don't have really good digitized operation, content digitized, you know, all you've got is a pretty is a pretty user interface and your mobile app. So to really have strong capabilities, it's got to be throughout. And that's again one of the things we identified and committed to was it's not just about you know a, a good app um, that's important, right. but you need all the underlying stuff to drive that. So you look at, for example, you look at most banks and credit unions um, online account application. Okay, it's really most of them are really just facts. Sure. In other words, it's a form that's filled out. And then either prints out or appears on somebody's screen at the other end and, and is data entered. It's not an online application process. And that's usually because the, the, what's kind of under the hood is not capable of handling that. So one of the things mm-hmm. we did Alliant, we built it with, with some trepidation, we built a consumer lending platform, a proprietary consumer lending system, because we could not get. Uh, the functionality off out of the uh, uh, the existing vendors and a lot of time, effort, money uh, involved in that, but now really serving the organization well. And we just felt that was necessary to support the digital ambitions and the digital vision. So yeah, it, the, I think one of the big challenges for uh, the traditional branch bank is 
is the the investment challenge and how to have enough funds to be able to do both and and also for that matter you know redesign your branches uh, although i don't think the answer ultimately is branch design i don't i don't think mm-hmm. on the cost side that may be helpful um i don't think it addresses the revenue challenge in branch banking which is a whole nother question well that's I, that's the main <laughs> sticking point right they're not profitable and so you can optimize all you want but right. if the, the fundamental value prop isn't there then the fundamental uh performance isn't there it's right it's not going to cover the gap yeah brett king um said that you know that the branch revenue problem is not a design problem and i agree with him that yeah. um, that Good way of putting it that you know there there are a bunch of things that have happened kind of on the financial dynamics over time that that have just created a, a mismatch between the revenues and expenses of of what i would call branch banking and it's on both sides it's expensive right and and mm-hmm. and the the other thing you know i'd point out is that if if your model is about offering locational convenience which is the traditional retail banking model mm-hmm. Uh, and and again, most consumers historically have chosen their provider based on convenient location, although that is eroding. Mm-hmm. The only way you can grow is by adding branches, by adding footprint. Uh, and And that's an expensive proposition in itself. The other thing is branches are notoriously unproductive from the standpoint of revenue generation. Um, the average bank branch in the U.S. opens two new accounts per day, and eighty percent of those accounts are break-even or unprofitable. So they're opening they're opening you know two profitable accounts a week, mm-hmm. and that number, by the way, has not changed in over two decades, despite all the investments in merchandising and sales training and. Incentive. And and of course, there's less and less traffic in branches now as people continue to take up uh, digital channels. So the prospect of selling more through the branch, I think, I think uh, you know, is is you know is one that it's just not going to happen. And and I think everybody thinks they're going to, or at least wants to, but I don't see it. It's running up a down escalator, in my view. So so the other thing that's happened is. Um, uh, more more macro in the market, and that is that for the last two and a half decades, net interest margins uh, have been declining. So the yeah. the spread between what banks and credit unions earn on their loans and other assets and what they pay for deposits has been shrinking. And I think again, I think a lot of that is probably due again to to digital, where consumers have access to more providers. Not just limited to those who are within, you know, a convenient distance from their home or office, and they have abundant information on competitive offerings. The web provides them with easy access to information about competitive offerings, so they have a bigger choice set, more information, and I think that has driven down margins uh, over time, particularly on on loans, and uh, and to some extent driven up deposit pricing. Yeah. So, so. You know, margins have progressively come down over time. So you have this, yeah, you have this mismatch between revenue and expense. And 
that's going to have to give. I mean, we're just still in the U.S. We're we're way over brand. Uh, we have way too many locations for the usage and the demand. Yeah, yeah. As I anecdotally, as I think about how I've used a bank branch, really, it's only for transactions that I could not do right. online, meaning that bank provider couldn't support it electronically. Right. It's not that I wouldn't do it online. Now, I would say there's some brand benefit to having your logo plastered yeah. on every corner in, in a community, right? But I imagine, and I haven't seen any research along these lines, in, which is why I question <laughs> some of the branch-focused research, is, or rather the research looking at what is the importance in the, the role of branches, is al- alternative ways to create brand presence. Yeah, in communities haven't really been explored. So it'll I think, be interesting. I think that's right, and I think that's that's one of those challenges that sort of I referred to earlier. That you know, how do you how do you create that brand awareness? And yeah, there there certainly is, particularly in community banking, there is some benefit uh, and and sometimes significant benefit to having that physical presence, and that that reassures people, uh, even if. They have a preference for remote and self-service mm-hmm. access. And and knowing and being known has value. And, and particularly sure. in the small business market, I think, has tremendous value. Although, frankly, I, yeah, I've heard the argument that, well, you know, there's the billboard value. You know what? How many billboards could you buy for the cost of operating a branch? Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you could buy up every billboard in the market mm-hmm. um, if you wanted to. So, but yeah, and and... You know, to be clear, a lot of consumers still list location as the primary reason they choose an institution. Although, you know, when I got into retail banking back in the 80s, that that was like 97% chose solely because of location. Right. Today, that number is still high. I think it's somewhere in the low 70s. But other factors have been come up a great deal in importance also. And and consumers will make trade-offs. And and the other thing that's happening is, you know, this whole notion of even primary financial institution has really shifted. So for convenience purposes, consumers used to bundle their uh, financial services usage. Today, because again of lower friction, access to more providers and and information about those providers, consumers are unbundling. Their relationships, they're uh, particularly uh, larger wallet consumers, are are choosing best of breed providers for different services, and 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 that again is is something that I think the 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 risk for the traditional branch institution, branch based institution, is that they are left with the high costs to serve but low revenue contribution portions of a relationship, right? right? Uh, so my wife keeps a local bank account because she wants to have a safe deposit box right? to keep documents and other stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a high margin business. No. And otherwise, she keeps the minimum balance to avoid a, uh, a maintenance fee. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing today's spreads, that's not covering costs, although she's low cost to serve, because uh, when she does need cash, she'll go to the ATM. Sure. Uh, but 
nonetheless, I mean, again, I think I think that's the risk is getting trapped in the model. Your relevance is location. You're chosen for those things, as you described, that require a location. Those tend to be pretty high expense types of transactions, you know, cutting a check or, or you know, some of the other things. Um, and, and so you're left with, you know, again, the high cost to serve, low revenue, but you can't pivot easily from that. And that's, that's the challenge. And, you know, in some ways, I'm grateful we didn't have the option of going the branch route, uh, because if convenience is your value proposition, if that's the center of your value proposition and you're relevant, you can't simply pivot to become a digital player, right? right. Uh, you're putting your existing revenue stream at risk, and you don't have a compelling value proposition to replace it. To replace it, yeah. yeah. And so I think I think that's a that's a challenge. And I, I know there are a lot of retail bankers out there wringing their hands over that one. Is is how do I do it? And there are different things have been tried, including you know. Okay, launch a, a digital arm, although that's expensive, yeah, and can and complicated when you're trying to manage both. But that's one way to do it, and hope you can transition. Or for the largest institutions, they can be both because they their their value proposition is ubiquity. They're everywhere, both physically and digital, and they can do that, right? So if you're Chase, you can have good uh, physical access, locational convenience, uh, and you have very good, very strong digital capability. So yeah. You can be both. Yeah. They have the scale to cover the overhead of both. They do. They do. Yeah. And I think, you know, long term, I have to imagine that, you know, uh, and, and we've already started to see it, particularly with the pandemic, is culling uh, and thinning out their branch network because they yeah. already had density. Um, so they can thin that out. And actually that generates, you know, resources to be able to invest more in their digital capability. Right. So, so I think the biggest banks, you know, can compete on ubiquity. The, the challenge is for, I think, for the midsize and smaller, what's, you know, what's their value proposition? Um, yeah. What? How do they answer the question, the consumer's question, why should I do business with you? And that to me is the essence of value proposition, having a, a compelling, differentiated, uh, and, and durable answer to that, uh, to that question. And I think, I, I think as I look at the landscape, I think a lot of providers don't really have a good answer to that, um, yeah. at least one that will be differentiated and durable. Yeah, interesting. I wonder if consolidation is a solution. I think it is one of the the answers. Uh, I think it's one of the ways you take out that excess capacity. Yeah, uh, particularly in market consolidation, and you saw that in some markets back in the late eighties and nineties. With uh, and I participated in that when I was. Uh, with Chase uh, and Chemical Bank, uh, we took out tremendous amount of branch capacity uh, and and generated tremendous amount of savings, but still had a fair amount of density. We were yeah. we 
Right. So, so before in-market mergers, those in-market mergers, there was there were three branches on every corner, right, of different banks. Yeah. After that, there was one branch on every right. corner, right, uh, one or two, and and so I think that's going to be one of the answers. Is I think more consolidation and and if if the financial pressures uh, pick up, then yeah, I think we'll see more uh, more of that. Right. I want to go back to talking about status quo. I mean, the chicken and egg problem of of the branch is certainly falls into this into this challenge of mm-hmm. of seeing a new way into the future. But when you were doing scenario planning internally at Alliant and you're trying to break through status quo and bias and at the same time build confidence in in folks that you trust them and and you need to hear their perspective. How did you accomplish that? Was it whether it was, you know, an outside party or maybe some techniques that you used? How did you overcome that status quo? Yeah, we we did use uh, outside facilitation was okay. one one way. Um, folks who had experience in scenario planning and and yeah. understood both the technique but also the traps and yeah. and. Sort of the first thing you do when you introduce people to scenario planning is you talk about those traps. You you talk about the limitation of knowledge. You talk about overconfidence, frame blindness, firmly held beliefs, and and so there's a lot of I think kind of foundational work there to get folks to understand some of the challenges to planning and the challenges to thinking about alternative futures because we tend to at particularly confident business executives tend to have a certain view about what's going to happen, an opinion about how things are going to evolve. Yeah. And so a big part of that is saying, no, you know, drop that for now and open up to things which, you know, you would say, well, no, no, that's, that's not conceivable. That's not going to happen. The, another way to approach it is to look at forces, market forces, and and look at alternatives to that. And so one of the techniques is to build a, a four-box grid, and you pick two forces at a time to what you might think are large forces in the market. It might be, you know, people's comfort with technology and self-service, and it mm-hmm. could be political, social, whatever. And you you kind of array those, and then you look at those four boxes and what those what those combinations of forces would look like. And again, try to do that in the spirit of, you know, kind of almost blank slate. And and that's hard. It's challenging. And as an executive team, we had a certain amount of continuity. So as we did each time, we knew a little bit more about how to do it and it got a little bit more open. But when we would involve a larger group of senior managers, we had to do exactly what what you it kind of referred to was we had to kind of like a boot camp, we had to break them down first because what you would get if you just went ahead and presented the scenarios is you would get a lot of skeptical, well, no, no, that's not going to, that couldn't happen. And you go, no, 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 just, it's a possibility. That's all we're saying is it's a possibility, yeah. one of the possible paths. And so it, it, it it's challenging um, to, uh, to let go of firmly held beliefs, very challenging. And one of the things 
that the folks who lead these kinds of efforts do is they lead you through some exercises to sort of reveal the so one of them which you may have done is they give you 10 10 questions uh and you have to estimate what the value is you know how much does a 747 weigh and how many miles is the nile and and they ask you to do that with a certain you know they give you a, a huge degree of confidence you know so you're not limited you're not constrained most people still try to be precise even though the exercise is you can have any range you want from zero to zillion. Yeah. Most people will try to guess with precision, right? And we're just, we're just wired to do that. And, and again, so those kinds of exercises also help to get, get us to understand limitations of knowledge, the, the biases, uh, the problems with overconfidence. And so, so it's, it's really helpful. And then, you can get some really rich discussion then around that. So yeah, we uh, we use uh, outside outsiders as well as cultivated that ability, and then we use scenario planning even in our uh, annual business planning. Okay, uh, more for risk management purposes, but also understanding that economist projections are, you know, <laughs> often very subject. To error, sure, um, and our own can be subject to error. Yeah, uh, we did a lot of you know. Here's our here's our best guess at what the conditions are going to look like for the next one to three years. But we ran multiple scenarios, uh, which now has become common for bigger institutions because regulation requires that you do that mm -hmm. stress test. But we would do it to identify mostly to identify risks as well as to I guess prepare ourselves if if the economy and other other uh, factors ended up progressing differently than what we had originally projected. So so it wouldn't be the first time we thought about right. that. And and then you know if necessary we would develop mitigations and other things ahead of time too, mm -hmm. so that we were prepared. And I think our board found that to be particularly helpful because how do they get confidence in the projections and planning numbers, you know, for us, this is a full-time job. For them, you know, it's it's part-time. Right. Uh, and and the classic case of asymmetric knowledge. So so scenario planning gave them some comfort mm -hmm. that we were all looking at a range of possibilities and what would happen in those and what would we do. Yeah. Um, and so again, very, very useful even for short-term planning. Were there any would, things that you might call consider long-held beliefs when you did scenario planning, they emerged less as knowns and more as unknowns to frame some questions around and, and to go answer where what you found was less, less precise to your right. point in your story, less precise and perhaps materially different than you thought? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you one that particularly um, a, a number of years ago when we first started using it, we, we, we kind of had a pretty strong belief that the shift to digital access was persistent and progressive. But we considered a world in which 
there was significant political instability and economic instability. And the implication was people might, in fact, distrust digital channels and digital sources mm -hmm. and embrace physical. We, we considered what are the implications of that if that were to happen. And, and by the way, that we did that exercise around the time of the financial crisis. Um, okay. So it was not, you know, <laughs> it was not out of the realm of reason. Right. Um, and, and basically, our conclusion was that the end game or the exit strategy would be selling, uh, you know, uh, e well, either liquidating the organization and distributing the capital to the membership. Uh, and it was substantial capital. Sure. Uh, the membership might have preferred that option or, or merging or selling to someone. And frankly, that's, that's been something that's always sort of been there is, you know, what if we can't pull it off? Is there value to the franchise? Yeah. Uh, that somebody would have value either as their digital arm or something like that. So, yeah. So that was one case. Now, subsequently, we became even more convinced that no digital is, is persistent and progressive. Not necessarily absolute. And I don't think branches are going away in my lifetime. And I hope to live a long time. Right. Uh, but, uh, but, but definitely their importance is eroding and, you know, and they're still far too many and they're far too big. So I'm trying to think of others where we might have really kind of changed our view or at least said, hmm, you know, this could be different. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't off the top of my head think yeah, of any significant fine. ones, but you know, usually, usually what happened in those cases is once we opened up, we began and looked at implications. We began to then identify these common factors, yeah, uh, those intersections of capability that would be valuable uh, in some scenarios, possibly essential, in others maybe just valuable, but but ones that um, uh, you know became pretty clear once we did that. But but again, uh, and I think for us, we might have had a little bit of, of advantage, at least on that kind of branch frame in that we had, we had never fully had a branch frame. That right. we'd, al we'd always kind of hoped for something else because that wasn't, you know, it just wasn't possible for us. Right. Right. Without that and, encumbrance. And it's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, often necessity is the mother of invention, right? So uh, if one strategy isn't available to you, then, okay, right. that's convenient. Um, we'll look at the ones that are. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, Dave, it's been wonderful learning from you. And I would appreciate, I really appreciate you joining the show and sharing uh, your knowledge. Are there any other tidbits of hindsight from your time at Alliant or beyond? I guess, you, like you know, just you know, we've talked today a lot about strategy, but one of the things I've just become convinced of over time is that, you know, even as unique as, as Alliance strategy might have been within kind of our industry, uh, at the end of the day, it's about execution. You know, Thomas Edison said, vision without execution is hallucination. And I, I firmly believe, particularly in the banking business, but I think this applies to a lot of businesses, you know, strategy is good intention. It's really about execution. The banking business really does put a premium on execution. Nobody has patents or proprietary technology. And so, you know, the difference, I think, largely is execution. And in my 
experience, the observation experience over the years, execution is largely about people. And that may sound, you know, no kidding, but but the importance of having a, a, an aligned, engaged, and competent or equipped workforce yeah. um, is just is just absolutely critical in terms of success and and so building organizational capability is is ultimately the key whatever strategy is chosen yeah and if you have just a bad strategy i'm not sure good execution of a bad strategy overcomes it but but bad execution of a good strategy we know you know doesn't work either and so you know that focus on organizational development organizational capability which is hard which for which there's no necessarily rule book or recipe for yeah uh, it's, it's just a lot of work and attention and you don't get it in automatically so one of the things that that uh back when i became ceo my team and i focused a lot on was the human capital piece and 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 making sure we had again aligned people who who understood the mission and the strategy and were working in alignment with that engaged they were committed to the organization and its mission and values and then equipped capable competent that they they could you know they had the right tools and equipment and the right knowledge and skills to be able to to execute so at the end of the day that's kind of my parting thought is uh, for all we've talked about strategy that that at the end of the day, you know, I know I will say for Alliant, it was very true that that I always considered human capital to be our co- competitive advantage at the end of the day. Yeah, it certainly is a service at the end, right? A lot of it's guided right. by technology, but right. it's a service. Yeah, 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 and and operational execution just absolutely critical. Right. Sounds like a topic for a second interview. <laughs> Yeah, and and I'm I'm a you know I'm a student of uh, I don't know that I've I've come close to mastering it, but I'm a student of organizational development and and you know and competency. And I think what, that's what I'd like to hear about next time because when you don't have engagement, how you create it is a complicated question. Yeah, well, I'll I'll, I'll leave you with this for next time. Then is that. Uh, in 2003, when we did our first uh, Gallup engagement survey, we had we were at 25th percentile. Okay, um, and then a lot of had gone on, a lot of change. So that was sure. not un- surprising. Um, since then, the company is consistently between 83rd and 88th percentile in Gallup's database of of companies that they survey. Um, and and I will tell you, it's not easy. It takes constant refreshment and and redoubling of effort um but it's uh but to me it's worthwhile because it it pays huge benefits not just in operational performance ultimately but also uh, ability to recruit ability to withstand to be resilient and withstand challenges i mean it's just it's really incredibly value valuable fragile but also something, it, and the reason it has competitive advantage is because it's not easy. <laughs> right. Absolutely. If, if everybody yeah. had it, there'd be no advantage. So. Right. Right. That's a great point. It's a great point. Well, thanks again, Dave. I look you forward bet. to next time. Good night. You bet. Thanks. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's A-G-K-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.